Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Once again, as we continue to look at uh, the incarnation and the application of that wonderful, <coughs> incredible doctrine, Philippians 2. I started uh, last week on Sunday afternoon by uh, speaking to the group that gathered uh, considering Christmas without them. It was people who, for the most part, not totally, but for the most part were those who had lost ones that they loved during the year and realized that uh, and were coping with uh, the fact that this may be that first Christmas without them. During the week, I had uh, phone calls, conversations with uh, friends in other states. One of them was uh, a pastor who, after some difficulty in his church, had been uh, voted out by the session of that church, and he was currently without call and uh, dealing with that after having been in the ministry for a a long time. And then another friend whose uh, son had gotten married uh, a few months ago, and after coming back from uh, Thanksgiving... He walked into their apartment and found his wife had overdosed from sleeping pills. She's okay. She's okay in the sense that she is alive, but she is dealing with whatever drove her to that is emotionless and is uh, even though they were in ministry, is questioning her own faith and really what she believes. Wednesday night, uh, we had a poignant reminder by Mike Hardeman from our church, who is a retired uh, Army chaplain, of what those who are in war go through at this time of the year. Now, the truth is, I could go on and on, but I sense you're bummed out enough already by just me saying those few things. But here's the reality of all of this is that uh, I could continue to share things, and basically everyone in this room knows someone who is dealing with some kind of suffering And here we are in the Christmas season. How do those fit together? We always hear of difficult things that happen during the holidays. And we will. And so how are we to look at that? If we aren't careful... Christmas simply becomes 
a one-day escape from whatever that suffering is. And I want to assure you today that Christmas and the doctrines of Christmas, particularly the Incarnation, are much more than an escape But a right understanding of the Incarnation will put these into perspective and enable us to deal with whatever suffering is going on and have a right perspective about that and not simply escape for a moment and then come back to it full-fledged the day after Christmas not being equipped to deal with it. We are going to read from Philippians chapter 2, beginning with the fifth verse. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow. (coughs) Lord, as we hear of these difficult things that real-life people around us are, are dealing with, And no doubt that brought to mind things in our own lives or things that others that we love are dealing with during this time of year. We need to hear from you. We need more than an escape. We need hope. We need peace. We need joy. And we need your love. Will you show that to us in your word? We pray for this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. If you're looking at the outline, you see where we are beginning that uh, misconceptions about God, which uh, we dealt with a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to revisit that temporarily. But misconceptions about God will lead us to a distorted view of human suffering. Now, two sermons ago, now I know you all remember this like it was yesterday, like it was moments ago, but let me remind you, uh, just in case or in case you weren't here, we looked at some of those misconceptions and how the incarnation brings about a right understanding of God and the impact that 
that therefore has upon us. But today I, I want to start again with those misconceptions about God and point out how those same misconceptions, if we, if we have a wrong understanding of God or wrong expectations about God, it will give us a wrong understanding of suffering. And we will look at it wrongly and we will not be equipped to deal with the difficulties of suffering in this life. Now, let's go back uh, to those uh, misconceptions about God. One is uh, <clears throat> I brought out what I called the, the bad Santa Claus. And that is that, uh, you know, he's, he's running around. He's looking to see if you've been uh, bad or good. So be good for goodness sake, because if you aren't, what's going to happen? Well, you'll get coal in your stocking at least. But when people look at God that way, when they see him as one that's kind of hovering around, kind of looking at how you've been acting and so on, and then, you know, if that's how they understand God, and then something happens where in their life they are suffering more often than not, they will see it. Okay, well, I, I guess I'm getting punished. I guess I'm getting what I deserved because I did this or that. Or if they don't know something specific that, that they've done, uh, you, you know, they, they might think, well, I don't know what I did to deserve this, but it must have been something. Or you think that about someone else. What did they do? to deserve this. That's beginning with a misconception about God. And it's going to warp our view of suffering as well. And then there's the from, from a distance God, from that old song where God is watching you uh, from a distance. And uh, there we see this, this non-involved God, who is somewhere out there. And so when suffering comes, here's your great comfort. He's watching you from a distance. Isn't that comforting? <laughs> you know, there's no comfort in that, is there? From a distance? He's... He's somewhere way out there. Now, now here's, here's the hope by some uh, that they think that that somehow protects God from any kind of blame that he might have. If he were a God who is involved with us and, you know, a God who's in control of all things, who is completely sovereign, then you have to deal with how does that fit in with the suffering? And so, for some, they find this easier to somehow justify God and say, yeah, he's somewhere way out there. And then there is what uh, I called the, the Downton Abbey staff God. And that would be, uh, you know, the, if you didn't watch Downton Abbey, it, uh, you know, it's this uh, British family and they've got these servants, and that's the staff. 
And when they ring the bell, those servants, no matter what's going on in their lives, they they run and they do what is necessary to make one, uh, uh, you know, feel good, uh, to take care of any of their needs that they might have. And so that's the the view of God that, well, he's he's there to take care of my needs. And if I'm uncomfortable at some point, then I need to ring the bell, pray, some would say, pray, and then God should come running and take care of whatever that need is. Now, here's the problem. What happens when that's suffering and you ring the bell, you pray, and the suffering continues? So with that view of God, you're going to come to the conclusion he's just unfair or he's mean or he's incompetent. He can't do anything about this. Too often we tend to think that the only way God should deal with suffering is to remove it. Johnny Erickson uh, who many of you will be familiar with, uh, way back in 1967, had a diving accident and became a quadriplegic and has gone all over the world speaking about that and, and looking at, at suffering. And she, has, uh, she uh, has commented that she's been in other parts of the world and seen people suffer joyfully. And she's analyzed that. She said, we tend to think ourselves here in America that God wouldn't want to cramp our style as he might with poor people elsewhere by allowing or causing suffering. We tend to think our God exists to make our lives happy, more meaningful, and trouble-free. We think to be healed of suffering is to be happy, she said. Now, that's profound. We think, if I could just get rid of this, then everything would be fine. Or if I could just change these circumstances. Now, here's the thing. We often talk about the fallacies of the so-called health and wealth gospel. The, you know, those that would preach that God wants you well. And we will talk about those fallacies and say, well, you know, that's, that's not biblical. But too often when it comes to suffering, we act like that's the truth. That somehow there, there can't be any good reason for what I'm going through. And so God should just take it away. Now, let me make it clear. Sometimes God does take away the suffering. Sometimes that's how he deals with it and wants us to deal with it. But often, he has another way. The fourth misconception about God is you, you have God as kind of the anti-Satan, the, the opposite of Satan, and there's this big wrestling match going on and, uh, you know, when good things are happening, God is winning. And when bad things are happening, Satan must be winning. 
But what, what does that imply if, if we're going through suffering and it continues on? Well, it implies weakness. He's losing. He can't seem to do anything about this. So let's look at the incarnation and what it says to suffering. Is there a reason for it? Does God ever use suffering? Because I'm convinced that the incarnation displayed the truth about God and therefore gives us a right perspective on human suffering. I read to you from uh, Philippians 2. Uh, Keep your finger in there. Uh, In terms of the incarnation, we've talked about this for the last two weeks, but it is uh, God taking on flesh. God becoming flesh. Dwelling among us. C.S. Lewis said, it was like a shepherd becoming a lamb in order to sacrifice himself to save the rest of the flock. Like him becoming a lamb. So here's basically what, what the incarnation tells us. Three things, very briefly. He came, he dwelt, he came, he dwelt, and he died. Very simply. He came. Verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. There is a doctrine that uh, in, in, in theology we call uh, the humiliation of Christ. And when we talk about the humiliation of Christ, I think we can rightfully talk about uh, his humiliation and his suffering. We can talk about those two together. So let's, let's look at, you know, in the uh, catechism, in the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, it asks the question, uh, uh, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? In other words, when do we see Christ's humiliation or his suffering? When do we see it? Here's how it begins. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. That's how it starts. We might be tempted to think that Jesus' suffering began in Gethsemane or his suffering uh, began uh, with the arrest and Uh, beatings and torture and the cross. Those are all a part of his humiliation and his suffering. But that's not where they began. And if, if we don't understand that, we've missed. We've missed how long the trip was from heaven to earth for God to become man. Christ's humiliation consisted in being born. And that in a low condition. The idea of being born in in the manger. And that's a hard concept. I, I used to think that the manger was the, you know, the house 
he was in. Rather than, you know, the, the trough thing. And, it, you know, for many of us, it is a hard concept. Our, our little grandson, we, we tell him uh, we have a manger scene that you can play with. We say, put, put Jesus back in the manger. And he, he takes him and he gets a, a truck over here that is a, a Ford Ranger truck. And he puts him in the truck. It's hard to grasp. And actually, that would have been better than being in the manger, right? In the back of this truck. That's where the humiliation began. Him being born in a lowly estate. First of all, being born because he was from all eternity. And so to be born is humiliation. And that in and of itself is suffering. And then he dwelt. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Here, here's what the, the catechism says. He was made under the law. So we start out with uh, his humiliation consisted in being born and that in a lowly condition, he was made under the law. You get it? Here's the, the lawmaker putting himself under the law. The law giver subjecting himself to the law, which is suffering. And then it says undergoing the miseries of this life. Now, everything that he experienced might not be what we would think of in terms of misery. But when your rightful place is in heaven, everything about this life is misery. And that's his suffering. And so, you know, we need to understand this was not, it was not just the appearance of flesh that he had. He took on real flesh. And so, when he was cut, when he was whipped, he bled, he bruised. If he fell down, his knees were skinned. He experienced those things really. It didn't just look like he did. And that's his suffering as well. And then he died. Verse 8, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's how that catechism question continues on. Let me, let me back up and read it all together. Uh, where's the uh, humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consists, consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, being made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, and then it goes on and says, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. This is what it says in 1 Peter 3, <coughs> verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God 
being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So, what does this have to do with our suffering? Let's start with Jesus. He was right up front with people. Nowhere did he come anywhere near a health and wealth gospel. He made it clear he was not the Downton Abbey staff making sure of the comfort of those who followed. Instead, he said things like, in this world you will have tribulation. He said things like, walk while you have light, lest the darkness overtake you. And the apostles continued on in that vein. And there is a connection between the suffering of Jesus and what we experience here on this earth. Paul talks of that uh, connection in Philippians 3. He says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, how do we understand that sharing in his sufferings? I don't want to oversimplify that. But I cannot tell you what that is. It's not that I know and don't want to tell you or I'm keeping something from you. It's that in terms of specifics, I can't tell you. I would never profess to understand the reason that you are suffering or someone that I love is suffering or why I am suffering, I would never say, here is why. Because at best, at best, you've figured out one reason. But I am convinced there are multiple reasons. Probably countless reasons when people suffer from God's perspective. So rather than simplify it by saying it's going to make you a better person and, and so on, yes, your, your faith will grow if you're in Christ. But I want to share with you four things that we can, we can know. Suffering, first of all, it is a part of being a child of God. Now, those who aren't children of God suffer as well. But listen to what John Calvin said long ago. Whomever the Lord has adopted and deemed worthy of his fellowship ought to prepare themselves for a hard and toilsome and unquiet life. By the way, all you have to do is look at what happened to those around Jesus when he was born and and went through his life. And you see that. Uh, this unquiet life crammed with very many and various kinds of evil. It is the heavenly Father's will thus to exercise them so as to put his own children to a definite test. But here's the key. Beginning with Christ, his firstborn, he follows this plan with all his children. So there's the connection. Anytime you think of human suffering, 
Think of that one who took on flesh, who became a human while fully God, and yet he suffered at the will of the Father. And when you see that, you will be reminded of us living in a fallen world where suffering is all around. This week I was uh, I had a meeting with somebody and I was uh, I got there a little bit a couple minutes early. I'm sitting in the um, parking lot in a McDonald's and it was a nice day, so I I got out and I'm leaning against my van, kind of looking at this beautiful area they had. You know how beautiful McDonald's are. This beautiful area (laughs) that was well landscaped and pine straw. And it was a, you know, a beautiful day. And I looked down and I saw a syringe with a needle on it that had been used. And I was working on this and and I thought, (laughs) that's the fallen world. That is, that's just evidence that we live in a fallen world. It's a reminder of what kind of world we are in. Secondly, the incarnation reminds us of the uniqueness of what we believe. Uh, This is one of the things that makes Christianity absolutely unique among world religions. Only Christianity has a God who has come in and suffered. Only Christianity. Uh, Keller puts it this way. There is no way to have a real relationship without being vulnerable to hurt. Christmas tells us that God became breakable and fragile. God became someone... We could hurt. Why? To get us back. No other religion, whether secularism, Greco-Roman paganism, Eastern religion, Judaism, or Islam, no other religion believes God became breakable or suffered or had a body. Christianity is absolutely unique in that. And that should become a part of our comfort. And here's why. Thirdly, we can know he understands our suffering because he was here. So he gets it. He understands it. Let me give you just one example. Mark 7, um, we'll not read that, but basically, uh, they, they uh, beginning in verse 32, they brought a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. He, he couldn't hear. He couldn't talk. Uh, they begged Jesus to lay his, his hand on him. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and then he spit and touched the man's tongue. Now, what he did was this, he couldn't communicate with the man, but this, was, this showed the man something's going to happen with your ears and, and your tongue. I'm going to do something with your hearing and your, your speech. What we see is Jesus is entering this man's world. That's the incarnation. So the great king of heaven, the creator of the universe, sinless lamb of God, comes down and identifies with this man's 
condition. And he meets him there. And then, listen to this. It says, he looked up to heaven. That showed the man where this miracle's coming from. He looked up to heaven. And with a deep sigh, said to him, Ephathah, which means be open. There is a miracle that is, is, is coming to you. But here's what I want you to catch. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh. You know what that is? That, that's a groan. Jesus is about to heal this man. And when he looks at his state, he goes, oh. Because he understands it. He understands that he's looking at the ravages of a fallen world. He understands what it's going to take to reverse that. And what it's going to take is Jesus suffering all the way to the cross. And that's the only thing. And then then he heals him. And what he does there... By the way, that man would die someday. He'd get sick and die. He might, he might have lost his hearing again when he got old. Who knows? But he and the people there and we all got a glimpse of the way it's going to be. That there's going to be a time where ears will be opened and there won't be this kind of suffering because the fallenness will be Reversed, all things will be made new. And that's what he showed us. And then fourthly, suffering proves the importance of the incarnation. God becoming flesh. Uh, we cannot ignore Matthew one twenty three. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So whatever's going on for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has shown us God with us. Many of you will remember some years back when um, Princess Diana was killed in a a, a car wreck. Now, this is hard probably for many of us to imagine being Americans. And there was grief in our country, if you remember that. But in England, it was a whole different story. And they felt something way deeper over there than, than we did. And one of the things that they were struggling with was they heard nothing from the queen. This is what one writer said at that point. Hearing nothing was like a child angry with longing for a cuddle from mum. There was a newspaper. And in their, their section, Voice of the Mirror, it had a headline, Addressed to the Queen. It said this, Your people are suffering. Speak to us, ma'am. People are suffering. 
Speak to us, ma'am. After a long silence, God spoke to people who were suffering. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And His name was Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, I am so conscious that this message, when it comes to suffering, it doesn't fix any suffering that people are going through. But you weren't just that Downton Abbey staff God. You aren't that. You're a God who did way more than that. You came and and dwelt among us. And you did more than just do that so you could say, I get it, I understand but so that you could show us you were with us and would never forsake us. Thank you for that. Will you use that to give us perspective? We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.